Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. Today, we're continuing on with Chapter 5 of 99 Bottles of OOP by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen, finishing off 5.1, Separating Responsibilities, and starting the Extracting Classes section, covering parts 5.2.1 and 5.2.2. Remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Club, and if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet with us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. How did you find this week's reading? This week's reading was interesting. It was a nice continuation from last week because we got to ask ourselves more questions and near the end, we're about to get into a, what I've decided to call a plot twist (laughs) in the refactoring journey uh, because we end up doing something that I didn't see coming and I'm I'm really excited to, um, to introduce that concept and then next week we'll get to really dig in. How about you? Yes, I felt a bit more in limbo. So I see what you mean by a plot twist, but I'm still not quite sure about the impetus of it. So why exactly we're doing it? And I'm waiting for it to all crystallize and become clear. And so that's Mm -hmm. what I'm looking forward to. Okay, that's fair. Makes sense. So we are continuing chapter five with 5.1.3, enumerating flocked method commonalities. I feel like these section titles are getting harder for me to say. Enumerating flocked (laughs) method commonalities. Okay. And so here we continue with the questions. We've already asked ourselves five questions. And the next questions, the next, what is it, four Mm -hmm. questions that we have are only applicable to the flocked five methods. And so question six asks, do the tests in the conditionals have anything in common? And so in listing 5.7, we write out what those flocked five conditional tests are. And one of the big things that stand out is that they all start with if number double equals and then a value. And that value is either one or zero. Yes. And so they do test very similar things. And the key point that Sally and Katrina want us to focus on here is that they test equality. So they test that number is exactly equal to another value as opposed to greater than or less than another value. Mm -hmm. And this is important because it means that the precision helps us with future refactoring. So it's not quite clear yet exactly how it's important, but I'm sure it's going to become clear in later sections. Is that generally something that you've heard before, that testing for equality is better because it's more precise? Well, I found it a bit strange because I always feel like surely you just test for what's obvious. So, for example, in this case, I don't understand why we would have said greater than or... It's not a relevant test in this situation. Well, for me, I guess it seemed obvious that we would test for equality to one or zero because those were those were the key cases that we were looking at mm-hmm. i guess for container you could have done something like number greater than one or something like that and or there's going to be some of these cases where you could have changed the equality and it's always going to work but at the time of doing the refactorings those checks made sense and also in other cases, so in other programs that you might be coding up, I can also see that it would make sense for you to try and test for a range depending on the case. So I guess I found it a bit backwards to say, yes, it's good that we tested for equality because this is going to help us later because I, I don't remember there being a, a point where we 
had a decision to make as to whether we tested for quality or range. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. It wasn't like we were picking between those two options and we decided to do one that was more precise because it was better for testing. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I also see their point. Like I get the point of this is clearer. It's more straightforward. There's a clear case that we can test against and it's going to be easier later on to move things around, particularly because of the similarities across the methods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my reaction too. Because I, I, when I looked at it, I said, I didn't realize we had the option of mm -hmm. doing it, you know, any, any other way than the way that we did. So it was, it felt a little strange to say like, you know, this is precise and this is better than this other thing. Um, but, you know, I think that point, the final point of testing for quality makes the code more precise. That was an important takeaway just for me and not really something I think I'd heard before for testing. There's also a bit where Sandy and Katrina say, programmers tend to blithely interchange these different comparison operators, confident that if the tests pass, the code is correct. So maybe, you mm -hmm. know, speaking from experience, they know that there are some cases where people won't put much thought into it. They'll just say, oh, I just need to check it's greater than zero. Whereas saying equal to zero is better in the long run. And so maybe it's those sort of cases that they want us to be aware of. So next time we don't just quickly throw in a greater than or less than, we think, wait a minute, can I go for equality here? And if I can, I probably should. Yeah, and that's the other thing too, because I, I thought that when you're testing, the more... The more that you, the more situations you can cover, the the better it was, because if you're testing for equality, then you're you're only testing for that one case, and you're kind of missing other, you know, other things that you could put in. So to me, that was that was surprising. I, I thought that by testing greater than or less than, we got to cover you know a range of different things, and then that was that meant that we were we had. I guess better test coverage isn't the right term, but do you know what I mean? Like that we were we were being safer that way. So that was interesting for me. I I think I've definitely had cases before where I've used greater than or less than, and then you open yourself up to edge cases that you might not have realized. So I can mm -hmm. definitely see how if you know you're just testing equality, it's either this or it's not. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's hard to talk about when we're just focusing on 99 bottles because it's quite a specific case. But there are definitely cases where I can imagine having that wider range could open yourself up to a load of edge cases that you didn't think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So question seven asks, how many branches do the conditionals have? And here we know that each conditional contains two branches. I think we talked about that last week too. Uh, and we've been pretty good about maintaining those two branches even though we we could have added a third one and we're not sure if this has meaning yet but it might and so we are talking about it now this question question eight do the methods contain any code other than the conditional now i remember saying last week that yes it does because we interpolate in um pronoun in the action method or something like that but in fact the answer to this question is no and so the point here is that the conditional as a body of code is all that's in there. So any interpolation doesn't count mm -hmm. as different code. And the question was trying to get at that. Apart from the conditional and anything that's embodied within that conditional, is there any other code in the methods? And so then the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Did you yep. read that question in the same way? Yeah, because when I saw conditional... Um, yeah, anything that was within it, unless it was like, you know, another conditional and a conditional or something, I didn't count towards that. So I think that made sense to me. Cool. 
And then question nine asks, does methods that take number as an argument depend more on number or more on the class as a whole? So this was a question that I thought was very interesting and definitely not one that I would have ever asked myself if I hadn't seen it in this book. And we did make a point last week in saying that, wow, all these uh, all these methods really rely on number and they take a number and obviously number is a very central part of it. But the question of does it depend more on this or the whole class, that was that was a, a big question, I think. Yes, and I remember also not being completely sure what the answer would be or what they were getting at then. Yeah, because what does it look like to be dependent on the class versus an argument? Yes. Yeah. And I remember calling out the action method and saying, hey, this interpolates pronoun so is that which is part of the class so is that method dependent on the wider class and in fact sandy and katrina mentioned that particular method in the answer where they say that the flocked five do only depend on the number argument and even though action depends on pronoun pronoun only depends on number so it's still just dependent on number mm-hmm And so going through these questions, that was our last question, going through these questions, is it at this point obvious to you what we're about to do, what direction we're going in? No, I still... Yeah, me too. (laughs) I still remember the weird question, uh, question five or something, which was saying, if you were to split this into another class, what would you do? And I remember being like, would I? Uh, I guess I'd split it on these flocked five methods, but I don't know why I do that. So that's at the back of my mind while I'm reading this, but I'm still not, yeah. I'm still not, I'm not seeing any clear sign as to why we're going to do that. Right. Like I think question nine was probably the closest I got to, well, if they're not dependent on the class and do they really need to be a part mm. of the class? But besides that question, and, and even that question wasn't like a, a very clear, yes, we are now going to break this apart. Uh, but that was the closest that, that, uh, that was the closest to the question that hinted to me that maybe we were going to do some, some funky stuff. So on to 5.1.4, insisting mm-hmm. upon messages. Did yep. you like my insistent tone? <laughs> I did like your insistent tone. Well done. And so... Here, Sandy and Katrina reveal that the code contains a deeply non-object-oriented pattern because the flocked five methods, they take an argument, examine it, and then supply behavior. And so this is a big no-no. So I feel really bad because I think until this part, I never really <laughs> I never really thought about how object-oriented any of this was. I was just I was just so focused on this idea that we had code that wasn't in the best shape and we wanted to make it more, uh, what is it, we wanted to make it more open and not so closed. Like I was so focused on that that I totally forgot that the, you know, the umbrella that we're working in is this idea of being object-oriented. And when I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, that's what this book is about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess at the beginning, there was a lot on the object-oriented mindset and then we sort of got lost Mm -hmm. in the flocking rules and that's why we even forgot wait why are we even doing this refactoring because of the six-pack requirement which we've still not got to by the way as i can Mm -hmm. see how you can forget that overall object-oriented mindset i guess i have it at the back of my mind that this is all about oo programming but like Mm -hmm. i said i'm still trying trying to look for that clear sign as to how we start breaking out more objects. I can tell from the patterns that we've got, particularly in the flocked five methods, that there's more to do. 
but I'm just not clear how we're going to take that first next step. Mm-hmm. Yep. So now we're going to zoom in on the container method. And to remind us what that is, so we have def container that takes number as an argument. And it says if number equals equals one, then return string bottle, else return string bottles. Mm-hmm. So this method came out of the flocking rules, but it's deeply flawed, uh, an independent OO practitioner would say. And it's deeply flawed because we have a dependency of number, the number argument, but that dependency doesn't even give you enough information to know what you need to do. You still need to ask a question of number before you know what you need to return. And so this means that the container method not only has a dependency, but still knows specific things about that dependencies. And this is the big no-no that we always want to avoid when we're talking about OO programming. So I like the part that says that if you want to apply a full-blown OO mindset, that mindset is deeply suspicious of conditionals. And I'm so glad that we we have that in this book because that has been bothering me this entire mm-hmm. time because I, I, I always thought that, you know, conditionals were a red flag and if we have one that we have to, you know, destroy it immediately has always been my, you know, my gut instinct. And the fact that we have used them so much and they, they've they been a pretty big tool set for us and they're everywhere and that we've been very comfortable embracing them never really made sense to me. And, you know, t- to our credit, we've been using them with a lot of restraint, mm-hmm. right? Like each conditional only has two branches and they're still pretty short and you know and all that so they're they're good conditionals but they're still conditionals and so i'm glad that we brought up the fact that maybe they're not so great and it's okay if we feel suspicious about them i think i'm a bit disappointed in myself because definitely before reading this book i was very anti-conditionals they're so bad but just through going through the flocking rules i thought oh well maybe they're fine if they're you know there's only two branches and we've extracted them with these special rules so it's fine i didn't i knew that there was a pattern there that we could do something more but i wasn't specifically saying these are conditionals these are evil and as sandy and katrina say my the hairs on my neck should have been standing up and that i should have been offended (laughs) by them and i wasn't i got i got lazy with that so (laughs) you got comfortable Mm -hmm. you got comfortable that's okay that's okay and as sandy and katrina do say that there is a place for conditionals in object oriented Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between conditionals that select the correct object and then, you know, you trust the object to go on and have the right messages sent to it or that it sends the right messages to a conditional that supplies behavior, which is what all our conditionals are currently doing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then it says that you should feel entitled to send messages to objects and look for a way to write code that allows you to do so. And I just love this idea that I'm, you know, I'm allowed to be and I should feel entitled to send messages to objects. And I think that it feels like it's been a while, maybe a couple of chapters since we've talked about specifically sending messages to objects. So mm. I'm excited to see how we're going to start really leveraging that and, um, and re-examining our code through that lens. Yes, I'm looking forward to getting back to that too. Mm-hmm. I like it where Sandy and Katrina say that code is striving for ignorance and preserving ignorance requires minimizing dependencies. Again, some more of that poetic, poetic great stuff that we get from Sandy and Katrina. Mm-hmm. And I like it because it's it's almost like the code itself is it just wants to be ignorant and it's us as the programmers that keep trying to give it all this information that it doesn't want. <laughs> We're ruining it. We're the ones messing it up. <laughs> we are the problem. Yeah. <laughs> And so to, and to illustrate what 
that ignorance looks like, we've got a rewrite of what the container method might look like in an ideal OO world. And so we have deaf container and the argument is now called smarter number. So that's this idea of a smarter object. And the body of the container method now says smarter number dot container. So we just take that object and we call a container method on it. And that's smart enough to know what we need to return, whether that's bottle or bottles. Can I tell you that when I saw that rewrite, I felt so happy. I just felt like I looked at it and I said, ah. Yes. That looks good. <laughs> like yeah. that just it just looks like the way the world should be. You know, it just it just made me so happy when I saw 100% that. 100% agree. So 5.2 extracting classes. So if uh, I can't remember if we've explicitly said what we're going to do, but we are going to be extracting a class. <laughs> and so uh one of the things that Sandy and Katrina talk about is that when we look at our code right now, we can see that primitive obsession is the dominant code smell. And primitive obsession is something that I, I feel like I've heard before. I feel like I've, I've probably heard it in um in Sandy's, one of her most recent talks. Uh, what is it called? Is it Get a Whiff mm-hmm. of This? Yeah, where she talks about some of the popular code smells. My favorite was, uh, I think I think we both saw that talk at, was it RailsConf this year? Yes, RailsConf in Missouri. Yeah. And when we were there and uh, and one of the things Sandy started with was, you know, she showed us a list of code smells and she asked people to raise their hands if they recognized one code smell, two code smell, three. And just the hands dropped so fast after <laughs> a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. Uh, and so... So it doesn't go into much detail about what primitive obsession is, but based on the way that we've structured our flocked five methods, my guess, my assumption is that we are basically evaluating a primitive. We're evaluating an integer in our in our um, methods, which is usually just the number, and we are spitting out another primitive, which is a string. So each time we're evaluating a primitive and returning a primitive versus evaluating um, you know, uh, an attribute of an object and um, really focusing more on that. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're pretty much there with that. I think the key thing is this idea that we're using integers and we're like testing them when really that represents a class that should be, that represents a concept that should be abstracted mm-hmm. out. Because yes. there's knowledge and behavior in there. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about how the cure, I love how there's a cure because obviously primitive obsession is a disease. The cure for primitive obsession is to create a new class and that process is called extract class. I know that earlier in the book, Sandy and Katrina wrote about some code smell resources. And I guess if we went and dug into those, we'd have more of a sense of, we'd have more of a sense of what the different code smells are but in particular what the different recipes are because we have no way of Mm -hmm. linking those up sure we can spot things that look that look bad but where do we get you know this library of recipes so that we know what to what to cook up to get the cure yeah that's a good point yeah it'd be nice if i don't know if this already exists but if there was an appendix that maybe linked to the popular smells and the popular um what are they called refactoring recipes Mm. then i think that would be helpful but yeah so i guess in this case you just kind of had to know that yes and so we take sandy katrina's word for it and head on to section 5.2.1 modeling abstractions 
So primitive obsession, code smell, extract class refactoring. So the primitive that we're looking at is something that represents a bottle number. And I'm assuming this might sound really obvious, but I'm guessing a bottle number is essentially a number of bottles. Yes, that is also my assumption. And then Sandy and Katrina take a couple of paragraphs to make sure that we understand the difference between a bottle and a bottle number. And I don't know about you, but I found this difference very easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, okay, yeah, I, I get that they're different. That's very obvious to me. And there's this bit that says a bottle is a thing while a number is an idea. This distinction may seem subtle. And I was like, no, I think it's pretty, I was like, I don't actually don't think so. <laughs> Normally with Sandy Katrina, I'm like, yeah, this is really subtle. I need to read this a couple of times. But I think for me, it was pretty straightforward because I felt like, well, it was clear to me that a number was an idea because a number can be attached to many different concepts, whether that's a bottle or people, cats, blocks of cheese, you know, could be anything. <laughs> Whereas a bottle like is obvious, obviously a specific type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I understand why Sandy and Katrina were bringing up this point because they want to stress the more, I think, subtle bit, which is the fact that with object-oriented programming you have things that are concepts or ideas like number and they become objects in the OO world Mm -hmm. and they use an example of an event management application and say that in the OO world not only do you have buyers and tickets as you do in the physical world but you've also got things like a purchase object a discount object a refund object Mm-hmm. And in, in this OO space, all of these things are on the same level of objects. The things that you find in the physical world and the things that you don't. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the next step is actually naming that new class. And we talk about how the two obvious choices are we can name that new class bottle number or container number. And for 5.2.2, naming classes, we go into a little bit more detail on how to pick between those two. So what was your initial pick between bottle number or container number? Which one do you prefer? I think my first thought was bottle number, but that was mainly because we'd only been been referring to it as bottle number already. And so I didn't think too much beyond that. What about you? Uh, Well, you know how I feel about container. I'm not a fan (laughs) of container (laughs) at all. So I was team bottle number. And it's it's funny because in 5.2.2 naming classes, we go back and forth between bottle number and container number and Sandy and Katrina make a point for each one. So each time I'm like, yeah, bottle number, go. And then I'm like, oh, no, container number is going to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bottle number is great. Oh, no, here's container number again. But then we finally end with the winner, which is bottle Ooh. number. And yes. the thing, the tiebreaker was that at this stage with a class, it would be too speculative to call it container number because we're only dealing with bottles. So while on the method level, we want to name methods after what they mean, what the broader concepts are, with classes, because it's at a higher level itself, you want to be more specific as to what they're referring mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was pretty close. It was a pretty close call between one or the other. So I think if you did decide to go with container number, I don't think Sandy and Katrina would be too upset with you. Yeah. But bottle number wins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we are wondering, did you recognize that we were about to extract a class before 
it said that we were about to extract a class. Did extracting the class feel like a natural progression to you? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio!